Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Channel Islands have the kind of stark, pristine beauty that makes people fall in love with California. Santa Cruz Island is probably the most stunning in the archipelago. About 30 miles due west of Malibu, it's surrounded by glassy indigo water, giant kelp forests, and tide pools. But probably the island's most fascinating feature, the one that draws kayakers and scuba divers from all over, is its abundance of sea caves, with names like Shipwreck Cave and Limbo. On the north side of the island, a couple hundred feet into the ocean, there's a huge, white-spattered rock with a sheer cliff face. It's called Bird Rock, for obvious reasons. Bird Rock has its own sea cave, a tall chamber with walls that are covered in green algae. It's mysterious and cool, but once you know the story of Fred Rayler, it's impossible to look at the sea cave or any part of this beautiful island the same way again. On January 2nd, 1981, Rayler, a 38-year-old man from Malibu, was pulled out of the water on the open ocean side of Bird Rock, along with his wife, 36-year-old Verna Johnson Rayler, and her son, his stepson, 8-year-old Doug Johnson. Verna and Doug were soon declared dead. Fred was cold, but other than that, fine. His pulse was steady, his breathing was normal. He appeared to be unscathed. Fred said their rowboat, a 16-foot orange dory, had overturned, and he had done everything possible to save his wife and stepchild. He was the sole survivor and the only witness. For many, many months, we were just trying to figure out what happened and is there any truth to Rayler's story. 
That's a criminalist named Dr. Duane Mose. At the time of Verna and Doug's deaths, he worked for a California state crime lab. And eventually we decided there was no truth to it at all. We could not substantiate anything he said, but we could substantiate alternatives. And as I saw all this going on, it all came together in my head as a story. Dr. Mose is an expert in crime scene reconstruction. When he found out about the sea cave inside Bird Rock, he wanted to investigate. And I said, I want to go inside. And I looked around at the rocks, at the height of the cave, and that's when another piece of the puzzle fell in place. That's when I turned to the people in the boat and I said, this is where it happened. It did not happen out there in the ocean. It happened in this cave. The cave, he said, was spacious and secluded. And it's tall and narrow. It's tall enough so that a man can take a oar to a rowboat, swing it high, and bring it down on an object with some force. My theory is that he rowed the boat into this cave with the intention of killing both of them. He would have started with Verna, catching her off guard. Verna was in the bow, and Douglas was in the stern, and uh, Rayler was sitting where a rower would normally sit, and he was in the middle. So while Verna would be looking forward to defend the bow of the boat against the rocks, Rayler could easily pick up an oar, swing it, hit her on the head. Then he would have turned to Doug. I believe that Douglas Johnson sprang from the stern of the dory onto Rayler in an attempt to protect his mother. And I believe that Rayler took Douglas by the head, slammed the back of his head twice into the edge of the seat, where the seat met the inside surface of the hull. Verna was petite, 115 pounds. Doug, only 50-something. Fred was six feet two, 195 first thing in the morning. He could have easily overpowered them, knocking them out, Mose says, so he could finish them off. He then threw, pushed, or carried both of them overboard and drowned them. He then exited the cave and it would have been difficult to get both bodies back in the boat, so I think he pushed the boat out of the cave and then took the two bodies and swam around to the other side of Bird Rock where he was found and taken out of the water by uh, the people on this boat that was passing by. That explained so much. Explained all the damage to the hull of the dory, explained why there was no witnesses to what went on, It just made it easier to do what he did. By the way, the oars for the dory were never recovered. They were lost somewhere, somehow, in the ocean. But this is just a story, albeit a powerful, persuasive one. It's a story that a lot of people have come to believe is true. It's a story that helped send Fred Rayler to prison. But Fred's story that he was trying as hard as he could to save his wife and stepson, that he was a rescuer, not a murderer, 
his story has a few supporters, too. To this day, I do not believe he did this. That's Verna's sister, Julianne. Verna's mother went to her grave convinced of Fred's innocence. And Verna's daughter, Kim, who lost not only her mother, but also her little brother, Doug, she believes Fred, too. So do his two daughters, Heidi and Kirsten. They all maintain that Verna and Doug died in a tragic accident. And it's not just the family. There are legal experts who believe Fred's case was a miscarriage of justice. This is Justin Brooks, director of the California Innocence Project. Well, it looked to me like the kind of case where a person was convicted based on bias. This summer, I got access to an archive of recorded interviews, investigation reports, and court filings. They led me into a forgotten world, Malibu, in the late 70s and early 80s, when the consummate family man was accused of horrible crimes. And Malibu itself was the motive. I'm Dana Goodyear, and this is Lost Hills. This is Season 2, Dead in the Water. Episode 1, Mr. Malibu. Fred Rayler is an inmate at the California State Prison in Lancaster. He's serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole for the murders of his wife, Verna, and his stepson, Doug. For the past few months, he's been calling me most days, usually at 8.30 a.m. sharp, just after I've dropped off my kids at school. Good morning. Hi, Fred. How are you? Good, thanks. His daughter, Kirsten, put us in touch. She's 47, the youngest of the sisters, and she doesn't have a family of her own. She's devoted her adult life to freeing her father. In the time since I started talking to Fred, he's been given a diagnosis of kidney cancer, and the project of getting him released has become even more urgent for his kids. Fred has told his story a thousand and one times. He's written it down, recorded it into a polygraph machine, sworn to it on the witness stand, committed it to memory. So the story has a plotting quality, like an old horse that's been led around the ring too many times. On January 2nd, 1981, the family set out early from Ventura Harbor on Perseverance, their 50-foot sailboat. It was a Friday, the first weekend of the new year. Much of Fred's extended family was on board, his mother and father, and his brother and sister-in-law, who were visiting from Indiana for the holidays. His wife, Verna, the four kids they had between them, ages 6 to 11, and the family dog, a six-month-old beagle puppy named Lady. They crossed the channel to Santa Cruz Island. Verna steered Perseverance into the anchorage to the east of Bird Rock, around noon. They had lunch. Then Fred's brother and his wife took an inflatable dinghy to the island, bringing the two older girls with them. Kirsten was only six, and she was told to stay back with her grandparents and take a nap. That left Fred, Verna, and Doug. Fred says an idea popped into Verna's head. 
we had had the puppy aboard for the for the first time, and Verna suggested that uh, we go out and maybe take some pictures with the dog and Douglas and the the boat and things. Verna, he says, had a specific shot in mind: Doug holding Lady in front of Bird Rock with Perseverance in the deep background. So Fred, Verna, Doug, and Lady piled into the orange dory. Fred made sure Doug grabbed a life jacket. Fred had on a float coat, buoyant but not life-saving, and Verna didn't have any kind of flotation device. He rowed them around the north side of Bird Rock, the open ocean side, to the spot Verna chose, approximately 30 feet off the rock. In the anchorage, the water had been glassy, but out here it was rougher, and they were also effectively alone. So we had just gotten past what they called Bird Rock uh, and was getting ready to start lining things up. According to Fred, Verna was in the bow, the front of the boat. He was in the middle, sitting on the bottom of the boat with his knees over the seat. He had his back toward Verna and was facing Doug, who was in the stern, the rear of the boat. Verna had been holding Lady, which the dog's name, and she passed him to me, and then I passed the dog to Douglas. And the the dog got very enamored with the uh, birds that were on the rock and got excited. And no sooner had he got a hold of the dog than the dog started to go over the side. Lady, he says, lunged for the birds. And Doug lunged for Lady, toppling halfway out of the dory. So Douglas started to go for the dog, too. And then I had one of the dog's legs, and then I saw a bump in my back, and uh, I think it was probably Verna trying to help as well. And with that final accidental jolt from Verna, Fred says, the dory flipped. Then the boat went over, and when I was underneath it, I got tangled and got stuck underneath the boat. It was terrifying, he says. Between the bow and stern lines and his camera strap and the strings on the hoodie of his float coat, he was caught. He couldn't find an air pocket, and he couldn't breathe. I actually thought I was going to die under there because I couldn't get my head away from the seat. And when we were, I was underwater. So my head was up against the seat, and I, I, I couldn't get loose. And I kept trying, and... Finally, I did get loose. When he surfaced, he says, he looked around and spotted Verna. Then I saw her on the bow of the boat with sort of like one arm on the on the overturned portion. She was, it was like she was sort of holding on. Her eyes were open, but unseeing. He swam straight to Doug. Doug was in bad shape, listing in the water near the dory's stern. I noticed Douglas was off uh, just a few feet away, uh, but he wasn't saying anything. The waves, Fred says, were splashing in Doug's face. So I got a hold of Douglas, and then I noticed that he was vomiting and uh, wasn't really responding. So I cleared the vomit out, and I tried getting some air into him. Carrying Doug with one arm, he swam back to Verna. He tried giving them both CPR. They didn't respond. I was so stunned, I I didn't really know what to do. Um, 
the it was it was way too far to swim back to perseverance. He was desperate to get to land. The dory was overturned and it was basically floating uh, to the south away from us. And so I tried to go over to the 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 Rockberg rock itself. Meanwhile, Lady had somehow clawed her way onto his shoulders. So he swam that way, with Verna under one arm and Doug under the other, and the puppy riding piggyback. But Bird Rock was not to be their salvation. And when I got to the uh, where the rock was, the Bird Rock, there was a blowhole, which is like a cavity where the water goes in and then it shoots the water out. So we had to swim past that. That side of Bird Rock is a sheer cliff, some 60 feet tall, craggy, covered in barnacles, no place to get footing. But somehow, Fred says, he was able to get Lady onto Bird Rock. And then I pushed the dog up on the, up on the rocks, and I was trying to get a handhold so I could pull Vernon and, and Doug out of the water and onto the rock, but I couldn't. It was January. The water was 50 degrees, and they'd been in it, according to Fred's timeline, for something like an hour. They were bundled up, waterlogged by now. Fred had on jeans, a velour shirt, and the float coat. Verna was wearing pants, a blouse, a sweater, and a brown and orange nylon ski jacket. Doug, Fred later noted, was dressed like Charlie Brown going out to play in the snow. Underneath his life jacket, he was wearing a bulky winter sweater and parka, and a pair of jeans. Near the rock, the waves surged to four feet. Their three heads bobbed up and down. They were exhausted, near death, or maybe, in Verna and Doug's case, already dead. And then I knew I was thinking. I, I knew that if, I did, if we didn't get help soon, it, we would, all three of us would have gone down. Finally, Fred says, he saw a sailboat and yelled for help. They heard me. And then they came over to where I was and threw me a rope. Uh, we got Verna and Douglas were pulled up on on board their boat. And then as I was trying to get up the ladder, my legs were shot. And then they winched me aboard. And the next thing I really knew was I woke up in a helicopter. He woke up into a nightmare. His wife was dead. His stepson, dead. I'm going to ask you point blank about Verna and Doug. Did you kill Verna and Doug? I did not. To Fred, Verna was perfect. Their life together in Malibu was a dream. Why would he have killed them and ruined everything? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. People don't always realize just how much their negative thoughts and experiences stick with them and weigh them down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mom does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. 
That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapist anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash lost today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash lost. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. You have to imagine Malibu when the Railers lived there. Same epic beaches, bathed in the same magic hour light, but with practically no one on them. It was the 70s. The innocent, squeaky-clean Gidget era of the 1950s was over. The coke-fueled 80s were just roaring into view. Malibu was on the cusp of becoming the maximalist Fantasia it is today. $100 million mansions and Lamborghinis and Birkin bags at the beach. But not yet. There were celebrities, but they were low-key, laid back, cool. Movie star Ali McGraw lived out there with her young son and her movie star husband, Steve McQueen. 
was 1972, and we rented a house on that fantastic broad beach, which at the time was the widest swath of perfect sand. I loved it. Mm. I loved it, and it provided my son with an incredible childhood. Their house, a rental on Broad Beach Road, was a street away from the Railers. And she doesn't remember this, but Fred coached her son in sports. All of us had funky little houses left over from the 50s. You know, sand dunes in front of the house and and the kind of flowers that only grow where there's sand. My house was a funky little clabbered house, really small. Three bedrooms, two bathrooms, a small kitchen, a living room facing the ocean. It was, when I rented it, um, an absolute horror of brown wood inside, shag carpeting, brown kitchen appliances. Back then, the celebrities had privacy. Nobody came out there to photograph Steve or Goldie Hawn or Sylvester Stallone, these are people, artists and directors and musicians, half of the rock stars had second homes there. There was a freedom to do whatever. There were tons of drugs. I didn't do drugs at that point. Um, But yeah, of course. I mean, it was the most amazing moment in, in Los Angeles music. I never met Bob Dylan, and he's still out there, but... There, you know, there was Neil Young, there were most of the Eagles, there was, you know, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Chris Christopherson, and and, and the band, you know, all of, of uh, Robbie Robertson's crowd were out there. Robbie Robertson had moved his family there, sight unseen, into Sam Peckinpah's house in the Malibu colony, because his friend David Geffen told him to. The night that we arrived there... Thing, and I was sitting there with my wife, and then we heard this ungodly screaming from a woman. So we jumped up and we ran out to the front door trying to figure out what was going on. What, what was that? And we, we should call the police. We should, what should we do? We're running back and forth. And, but the screaming keeps going on and on until it becomes like an odd thing, an odd screaming. And as it turned out, our next-door neighbor was Diane Cannon, the actress, and she was practicing primal scream. He set up a studio in a former bordello called Shangri-La, overlooking Zuma Beach. Everyone recorded out there. The band... And Bob Dylan, we just, we found this to be kind of like a sanctuary that you could be invisible as well as be around some of the most famous people in the world. It was a very unusual and great combination. The 70s became pretty crazy. And there was a lot of drugs and a lot of everything going on. And and when you're just in the middle of something, it seems very natural, seems very normal. So you just participate. 
You just hang out and say, oh, everybody's doing it. This is cool. But most of the people in Malibu then were pretty normal. And the electricians and the school teachers and the movie stars all sent their kids to the local elementary school. What was extraordinary about it was in that time, I have to call them real people lived there. It was just people who did every sort of job you can imagine. And it was so, so normal. So, of course, the sea there then was clean and beautiful, and the kids swam in it every single day after school. It was maybe the last moment that a middle-class family could live beachfront in Malibu. Before long, even Allie McGraw got priced out. The house she was renting got put up for sale. I couldn't afford to buy it, and so a big entertainer bought it, took every single thing down off of the property, and is currently on the market for $16 million. Back then, Malibu was fun, and it was sexy, and it was a little out there. It wasn't really yet on the map, at least not in the way it is now. But it was also changing, getting flashier, fancier, faster. And I was losing my fascination with the place because it was changing. This vibe that was there before started evolving into different people. And it didn't have the same charm, didn't have the same quality of coolness with all of these wonderful people. The drugs had changed, and that changed everything. I don't know. In the beginning, it felt fun and more inclusive and friendly. And later on, you know, with hard drugs, I mean, that's all it takes. You you, you know, you go from uh, social drugs to hard drugs, it ain't social anymore. And there was a new crowd in town. It was a combination of some people with money and drug dealers. And you kind of scroungy people. And there was even, it went from being this Shangri-La world out there, this bit of paradise, into a feeling of, it just felt dirty all of a sudden. Soon the middle class, the real people, would be edged out. People like Fred and Verna. She was a teacher's aide. He was a civilian employee of the naval base at Point Magoo. Highly educated, with a master's from Berkeley in naval architecture, but a government employee, making government money. They were raising four kids in what was quickly becoming one of the most expensive communities in America. It would have been hard to compete, let alone hang on. But the Railer family had something very valuable. They owned a house on Sea Level Drive, a private gated street that dead ends at one of the prettiest beaches in Malibu. Their house was large and ugly, covered in orange shag, but Fred was fixing it up, building a roof deck with panoramic ocean views. He knew what they had. And if they played it right, they might be able to ride this wave of real estate and money and get to live in Malibu forever. 
You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards that's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fred and Verna bought the house on Sea Level Drive in the fall of 1977. They were a new couple, in love, and they had a powerful connection. Fred was a widower. His wife, Jean, the mother of Heidi and Kirsten, had died the year before. And Verna was a widow. Her husband, Bill Johnson, the father of Kim and Doug, had also died. By suicide, people whispered. Lovely Verna's hair had turned prematurely silver. The kids were all little. Heidi and Kirsten needed a mom. Kim and Doug needed a dad. 
Fred was attractive. Thick, curly, dark hair, a little broody, a catch. And Verna? Everyone in Malibu loved Verna. They found each other, and it worked. I think a lot of people envied Fred and Verna. You know, they were the perfect story of yours, mine, and ours. That's Mark Hetrick, an old friend of the family that I talked to recently. His wife Beth and Verna taught together at the elementary school. Mark was a carpenter. He was helping Fred with the roof deck, and they all hung out a lot. He kind of could do anything. I mean, he wasn't a professional contractor or carpenter, and he wasn't afraid to, you know, take the roof off of his house and put a deck on it. You know, he could weld, and he, you know, he was a mechanic. I mean, he could just do all these things. He was just very mechanical and very engineering. As a family, they were athletic and outdoorsy, always hiking or getting in the ocean. They were 100% involved in their children's lives. You know, Verna was in the teacher's assistance in their classes, and, you know, Fred was there for all of the kids all the time, and um, Verna was there for all the kids all the time. And, um, I mean, they just were the parents that every kid would want. And their family was just the most important thing to them. Mark told me he and Beth looked up to Fred and Verna. They were the the picture postcard, Christmas postcard family of just, you know, two very handsome, intelligent people with four kids that were just delightful. Those were the kind of kids that we wanted to have and the kind of the family that we wanted to have. Fred and Verna seemed pretty unimpressed by the wealth and glamour of Malibu. They weren't your, you know, your real upscale um, Malibu people that had um, a Hollywood connection, you know, or a movie industry connection. Because Fred and Verna, you know, they were, you know, they were pretty settled, um, solid you know, upper-middle-class family living there that, um, you know, had this wonderful piece of property, and they were, you know, and it was a wonderful place to live and a wonderful place to raise kids. Fred, in particular, did not seem concerned with appearances. You know, he was sort of not your average Malibu guy. Or, you know, he, I mean, he wasn't trying to be Mr. Malibu So was Fred affected by the whole Malibu glitz and glamour? No, not at all. Fred, you know, he didn't really care about that stuff. He was a family man, living his values. And there wasn't a lot of that going around Malibu at the time. Here's another friend in an interview with investigators. We've seen so many people our age that sort of the man goes through this sort of midlife crisis where they're sort of insecure and... Concerned with material things and girlfriends, mm-hmm. uh, you know, driving a Porsche and, and chasing girls, <laughs> and uh, you know, sort of where their family is a drag on them. Mm-hmm. And there were an awful lot of people like that in Melbourne. And uh, you know, Fred couldn't be more different than that. Like a lot of engineers, Fred was logical and analytical and he was highly competent, especially in the water. On the sailboat, he was meticulous about safety. Here's Mark Hetrick again in an archival interview. The kids always had their 
life jackets on if they weren't in the cockpit and they had to ask an adult permission to get out of the cockpit and go anywhere else on the boat. Um, anytime they were ever rowing around in the dinghy, whether it was in the harbor or whether it was over on the island, they couldn't go out of shouting distance of the boat. Mark sailed with Fred a lot and was in several harrowing situations with him. But whatever was going on, he said, Fred kept his composure. Never, never um, raised his voice, never shouted or got angry, even, and was extremely calm in, uh, in situations that were potentially dangerous or scary. Remain calm under pressure. Fred's extensive training in the water had taught him this. But that quality of composure, of not succumbing to panic or hysteria, it hadn't helped him save Verna and Doug's lives. Fred was the only survivor of the Dory incident, the only human survivor. The day after Verna and Doug drowned, Lady, the beagle puppy, was rescued from Bird Rock. Here's Tony Clinch, an experienced sailor who knew the waters around Santa Cruz Island well. He's telling an investigator about how he found Lady hiding under a shrub. We noticed the birds were dive bombing it. Um, that's how we spotted the dog. It's a tiny little dog, this dog. Maybe that big, the be- be- beagle, a bagel, beagle. Mm-hmm. It would seem a bittersweet footnote to the tragic story. Fred's heroic efforts in the water had not been a total waste. At least he was able to save his dog. But the fact of Lady, that she was improbably alive, opened up a seam in Fred's story. Fred said he swam from where the dory capsized over to Bird Rock, carrying Verna and Doug with Lady on his head. Clinch didn't buy it. With the current and the wind, just no. What How could he have? He couldn't have and thrown that dog ashore. The dog couldn't have made it ashore. Then the claim that he hoisted Lady up onto Bird Rock and that Lady scrambled up it. That's sure. I would defy the dog. I defy a human being could have scaled and faced that cliff. Much less an animal. And that dog... If Fred was telling the truth about where they capsized, what he did, where he swam, then Lady should be dead. But Lady was alive. Fred's sailing buddy Dick had picked her up from Tony Clinch. And soon Lady would return to Sea Level Drive and provide a small bit of comfort to Kim, Heidi, and Kirsten as they began their lives without Verna and Doug. Lady's inexplicable survival. That was just one of the things that made the police suspect Fred's story was the invention of a murderer. Coming up on the next episode of Lost Hills, detectives come knocking. They have a lot of questions for Fred. To be honest with you, Fred, we really don't know what much about what's going on. We have no idea of, of uh, well, I can't say we had no idea. We do have an idea of what happened out at the island, but everything is really sketchy. So uh, we're kind of like, thrown into it after the fact. Somehow we, we 
need to figure out if, if there's a way we can figure out to, to make sure that there was no foul play or anything like that with this. That's next in episode two, Quiet No Longer. Lost Hills is written and reported by me, Dana Goodyear. It's created by me and Ben Adair and produced by Western Sound and Pushkin Industries. Subscribe to Pushkin Plus and you can hear the whole season ad-free and get early access to the final two episodes. Find Pushkin Plus on the Lost Hills show page in Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, Mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.